Today's scripture comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we love your word because it instructs us not only in how we might live, but it tells us of what you have done for us. I ask you today that you would open our eyes, that we might behold your glory, that we would open our ears, that we might hear your voice, that we would open our hearts, that we might believe, and in believing, Lord, that it might translate to the work of our hands in this world that we live in that people would know of your glory because of the way we live our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this Sunday is a little different than usual um, in the sense that we've finished up a series of sermons that we were in through the summer. And two weeks from now, we're going to jump back into the normal rhythm that we have of preaching uh, passage by passage through books of the Bible. We're going to be jumping back into our study of 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 12, talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So that'll be in a couple of weeks. But this Sunday and next, we want to just talk a little bit about who we are as a church. Um, The mission of Christ City Church is that we exist to make missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. We exist to make missional disciples for the sake of of the neighborhood. That forms the idea that we have of what we're called to do here and now. I want to talk a little bit about what kind of disciples we're aiming at, and we'll we'll look at something similar next week. This morning, what I want to do is just talk very simply about who we are as as a church. I want to talk about how we're formed. I want to talk about how we're formed as disciples and then why it matters. And so what we'll look at is just who we are as recipients of grace, how we grow or how we're formed, where we're transformed through repentance, and then why that matters. Just talk about why that matters, which means that we talk about our participation in God's mission in the world. This is what we're going to do. If I can remember how to preach, this is is Lord willing, what we're going to get through in the next little bit. You know, the church is not a building we meet in. It doesn't matter what dictionary you open. The first definition you are going to find for the word church is a building used for Christian worship. Problem is, that does not agree with what scripture says. Webster's, thank you very much. Kind of helpful, just not what the Bible says, right? Church is not a building. And that's why we're careful with the language we use around here. You sometimes hear people using language that you might not be accustomed to if you're from a church background. If you're not from a church background, this might be the only church language you know, which God bless you. God bless you. When I first became a Christian, I didn't understand anything going on in the church, and I started my own little glossary of terms because people use so many weird words. And I thought to myself, I'm going to create a glossary of terms for new Christians so I can help them understand how weird all these folks are. Their own little vocabulary. See, language creates culture. And the language we use forms how we live. And that's why we need to be very careful with the language we use and make sure that it's biblical. We want to have a biblically informed view of the church. We want to have a culture of church that displays the truth of God's word and the reality of his kingdom. So listen, we don't have a church. We are the church. We happen to have a building. We don't do church services. On our staff team, that's a swear word. One of our ministry residents used it last night. 
when we're having the dinner, so we'll, we'll teach them this week. <laughs> we don't do services. We gather as the church. This is a gathering of the church. Church isn't something we do. Church is something we are. You don't attend church. You are the church. The church is not a vending machine dispensing religious goods and services for a consumer market out there. We're just trying to meet the consumer needs. No, the church is actually the community where you are equipped and resourced to bring your gifts as a contributor, not as a consumer. And when you understand the church from a biblical perspective, you understand it's not about a couple of hours a week where you're in passive observation. It's actually about your whole 24-7 life of active participation in the kingdom of God. We are the church. All right, the church is not a building. Church is not a vending machine for consumers. What are we? I love the definition. This is what I use as a definition for the church. We are the people of God who have been called to God by grace through faith in Christ, who are then sent by God in the power of the Holy Spirit to make the fame and deeds of God known in our day. We are the people of God who are called to God and then sent by God to make the fame and deeds of God known in our day. We don't go to church. We are the church. We don't have Sunday services at the church. We gather together in this building on Sundays as the church. We don't have a church. We are the church. We just have a building. We are Christ City. This is part of our identity. It's who we are. And as we talk about how we're formed, we're going to talk about how we're formed as disciples. We're going to talk about why all of this matters. But we can't do that until we understand who we are as God's people. And that's why we're looking at 1 Peter today. I just want to take you back to the text for a second because I've already ranted for a few moments. Put this back fresh in your minds. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 with me. It says, you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you might Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, Peter wrote this, this letter to followers of Jesus in the first century so that they would understand who they are in this world. Isn't that what we're all trying to figure out? You just wake up day by day trying to figure out who you are in this world. I figured by this point in my life, I'd have it entirely figured out. I still wake up in this, who am I in this world? I need a reminder of who I am in this world. Why do I say we're recipients of grace? This entire letter, the purpose of this letter that Peter wrote was that, that they would be established deeply in the grace of God. Just look at the very beginning of the letter. He says who the letter's from, who the letter's to, and then in verse two, it says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Right, the point here is that he wants us to experience the truth that God's grace floods and overflows and keeps going in our lives because God's grace is always rich and it's always lavish and it's always unrestrained. It's multiplied to us. That's at the beginning of the letter. Then if you look at the end of the letter, in chapter 5, the very end, it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, by Silvanus, that's the guy that wrote this down for Peter, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So Peter begins this letter with grace, 
And he ends this letter with grace because everything in between from the beginning of chapter one to the end of chapter five is defining God's saving and sustaining and empowering grace toward us in Christ. And our identity as God's people, right? That's the who we are part of what I want you to see today. Our identity as God's people is marked by the reality that we are recipients of grace. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. See, he's not describing you as an individual. He's describing the church as a whole. And his whole point here with this fourfold identity, the whole point of it is that it's not something you can achieve. It's something that you receive as a grace gift through the finished work of Jesus. You're a recipient of this truth. All four of the identities that Peter defines here for God's people are restatements about what God said about his chosen people in the Old Testament. And then what Peter's doing is he's taking the Old Testament language and he's reapplying it to the church so that they might know that they are also recipients of grace in God's people. So let's just look at them real quick. The first one says the chosen race. I want to say by grace... Christians are a chosen race. Edmund Clowney is a commentator on 1 Peter. He said, There is a spiritual ethnicity to the church of Christ. Christians are blood relatives joined by the blood of Jesus Christ. This does not undermine or diminish your ethnicity by birth. In fact, I believe it's quite the opposite. In the church of Jesus Christ, we are united together from every tribe, every tongue, every nation in the most beautifully diverse picture of unity in the world. A chosen race. He says, number two, by grace, Christians are a royal priesthood. That ties together two very important things from the Old Testament. Royal and priesthood. In the Old Testament, royalty wasn't something you could aspire to. It was something you were born into. It was your identity. In the Old Testament, the priesthood was not something you could aspire to. It was something that you were born into. It was your identity. And being born into the royal line or being born into the priesthood were both positions of distinct calling and high status. As royalty, you enjoyed the status and the responsibility of ruling over God's people with justice. As priests, you enjoyed the privilege and the responsibility of mediating God's presence and power to the rest of the population and offering them forgiveness for their sin. The highest status you could imagine in their world was to be royalty or priest. But Christians have been born again into a new family a family with a new status and a new inheritance and new access to God. Look at what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're a chosen race and a royal priesthood. 
Third one, by grace, Christians are a holy nation, a people set apart for God. In Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, he says that our citizenship is in heaven. What does that mean? It means we follow a different constitution as a holy nation. There's a different law to uphold. It means that our true monarch is never changing. It means that we serve an eternal king. This does not undermine or diminish your nationality by birth. It just reminds you where your true allegiance and your true identity can be found. We're called to be a holy nation. The fourth one's by grace. Christians are a people for his own possession. His own. I've read this text. I, I, can't, I don't know how many times I've read this text, but in the last 20 years, I've read it a lot. Preached it, taught it, I've used it in discipleship. Sometimes, though, you know, you're reading the Bible and you come across a couple of words and it just hits different. It just, all of a sudden, you just go, huh, didn't see that. Like I've seen it before, but I haven't seen it before. His own, two words. Just studying this week, studying this text, and it's just his own, and I just couldn't get off it. A people. For his own possession. Have you seen the, the, the images and the reports of what they're finding in deep space with the James Webb telescope? I mean, I've been gone for a few months, but I'm sure that news hit you. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Let's just look at this. I mean, I look at that, that looks like something made by a graphic designer. Like, I actually can't comprehend how big that is. I've looked at it a lot. I've zoomed in on it. I looked at all the weird things. I read the reports. Some of you are like, I don't care about space. Others of you are like, yeah. <laughs> okay. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's all his. There's hundreds of billions of galaxies, hundreds of billions of stars, things that we don't even understand yet, things that David, when he wrote this psalm, Psalm 24, a thousand years before Christ, things that he could never have comprehended when he said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You're like, David, you don't even know, bro. Look at that. It's all his. And you're his own special possession. Like, let that sit on you. Feel that. Abide in that truth. That's all his, and he's interested in you. He's interested in me. Like forever. He wanted me with him forever. He wants his church with him forever. That's all his. I look at that, and I'm like, boy, Stanley Park's not that cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just look at that. We don't even understand it. That's amazing. He wants you. It's the good news of the gospel that we are his own special possession. That is an elevated status in the world of a God who has everything. 
Titus chapter 3, verse 4 says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You're his own special possession and it's all yours. Right? And you're worried about like your crypto portfolio or something. It's all yours. You're his own special possession. By grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus in his death and resurrection, Christ City, we are a chosen race. A new family among all people who are united together in Christ, filled with the Spirit, who have God as our Father. Come on, you are not responding to this as good news as it really is. You're like, uh-huh. I mean, George and John and Sam were pretty good. This, this new guy, I don't know. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. We're just chefs, Right? We just take the ingredients we've got. We do the best we can to to make a meal. I can't make you hungry, though. That's good news. By grace, through faith in the finished work of Jesus, in his death and his resurrection, we are a royal priesthood, born again into the family lineage of the king of kings. We ourselves, princes and princesses, who stand in line with this great eternal inheritance. We're called to serve as a priesthood to one another and to the world around us, mediating God's presence and power and love and forgiveness that all flows from this gospel of grace. That, that deep space thing, I don't even care anymore. I just went from caring about it to a weird degree to caring about this. Because this is life-changing. By grace, through faith, in the finished work of Jesus, in his death and resurrection, we're a holy nation. A people among all the peoples who are here as salt and light to just take others by the hand and to just walk them and find their way in this world to God through all the darkness. It's who we are. By grace, through faith, in the finished work of Jesus, in his death and his resurrection, we're a people of his own special possession. We've been gripped by God in his lavish grace. And when he grabs a hold of you, he doesn't let go. Your entire identity flows from the reality that you are his and he is now yours. And it's not so much that we trust our grip on God, it's that we trust his grip on us. He holds us. We're his own special possession. This changes everything because now our family and our authority and our place in this world and our inheritance in the world to come are all secured by virtue of being his. We're recipients of grace. We're forgiven our sin. We're adopted as his own. We're promised a new and better future all through the work of Jesus in our place. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that changes everything. Rest in that. Just rest in that today. We are recipients of grace. Number two, 
We are transformed through repentance. We are transformed through repentance. Once we begin to comprehend who we already are in Christ, then we can talk about how we continue to grow into that identity. Right? As Christians, we are simply becoming who we already are. Always. We're just becoming who we already are in Christ. Because who we are declared to be in Christ is something that we have received, not achieved. So look at this from 1 Peter chapter 1. It's in, it's in chapter 1, verse 13. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There's actually an activity here. So there's a posture to live by here. It says preparing your minds for action. It, it literally uh, is girding up the loins of your mind, which is an awesome sentence. I just wish they would have just put that in there, right? Prepare your minds for action or gird up the loins of your mind. That is awesome. Problem is nobody knows what that means. Here's what that means. Men who would be going to run or maybe jump into war or battle would also have been wearing a long flowing garment that would go down to their ankles which makes running and fighting very difficult. <laughs> so girding up your loins means you gather up all that fabric, you pull it up, exposing your legs, tuck it into your belt, and now you're in the ready position. You're ready to go. There's a posture to living a Christian life. It's girding up the loins of your mind. Ladies, you can have it too. <laughs> You know, next time you're out somewhere and you got a long flowing dress on, just, just hike that thing up, tuck it in. Ready. Maybe don't. I don't know. Maybe don't. Ask the people you're with, they'll probably be wiser than that. I'm just saying, there's a posture to the Christian life. There's a way that we live. Are we ready? Are we set? What have we set our hope on? Get your mind set. It says, be sober-minded. That's literally, figuratively, be sober-minded. Set your hope on God's grace. See, to set your hope is to believe the fullness of the gospel. That's our posture in life. We're setting our hope. It's important. What are you ready for? Set your minds. Prepare them for action. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Hey, there's a then and a now in this text. There's a do not and a do in this text. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but be holy in all your conduct. There's something to turn from. And there's something to turn to. That's good. It's a picture that encapsulates the biblical idea of repentance. The biblical view of repentance is transformational. Repentance is not just the prayer that you prayed to get in the door of Christianity. Repentance is how you live. It's the ongoing transforming work of the Spirit in your life as you become aware of something that does not align with Scripture in your conduct, and you turn away from that, and you turn toward aligning your life with the truth of what God says in Scripture. 
It's a transformational practice. Repentance is a two-component action. It's a turning from and it's a turning to. From sin to God. So when you repent of sinful action or sinful attitudes or sinful motives in your heart, you are turning away from those and you are turning to the practice of biblical action and attitude and motive. Repentance is just agreeing with the will of God as revealed in Scripture. That's it. It's just agreeing with God. Where you go, right, that's wrong. I'm going to turn from that. Now, how do I live? Okay, here's how it says I should live. I'm going to live like that. A from and a to. It's a realignment of the values and practices in your life as you continue to grow over the years that you follow Jesus. All right, here's the problem with this text. Okay, I shouldn't assume it's a problem for you. I'm going to tell you my problem with this text. Here's the struggle I have with it. I've been walking with Jesus for over 20 years now, almost my whole adult life. Here's the problem. Look at it, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In, In my own problems, in my own doubts, in my own struggles, Here's how I read this. Verse 14 says, As obedient children. And I think to myself, the voice internal. Brett, if you would just obey well enough, you'd finally be able to earn God's love. You could prove that you're worthy, you could prove yourself by being perfectly obedient. And then you know for sure that he'd love you. It says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And I hear the voice that says, Brett, the passions of your former ignorance are still a huge part of your life on a deep level. And you keep it pushed down there real deep. Maybe that's actually a case against the fact that that you are loved. Maybe you're not. Maybe those things are stopping God from truly loving you. Maybe you're not quite good enough. Maybe if you tried a little harder. Maybe if you had a little more discipline. Maybe. I hear that. Verse 15 says, But as he has called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And I can think to myself, God is holy, and I'm not. I'm not holy in all my conduct. This whole thing's a sham in my life. The jig's up, they're going to find out. People will reject me because they will find out that I'm not as perfect as they think I am. Verse 16 says, it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. I read this and I just go, hey Brett, Jesus was perfect and you're called to be like Jesus, so why aren't you perfect? What's wrong with you? Now, I don't think I was dropped on my head as an infant. Okay? Which means I'm probably not the only person in the room who thinks like this when you read this passage of Scripture. Like, I don't think I'm unique here. Maybe this is not your thing, but it probably is in some of your hearts and heads right now. When I read it that way through my own brokenness, here's the problem. If I think perfection is the standard that I need to aspire to, I don't even want to try because I know I can't do it. 
And I confess, I put the expectation of perfection on myself a lot. And I'm not as bad as I used to be, but by God's grace, I'm not yet where I one day will be with freedom on this topic. But this is a struggle. That's why I don't play golf anymore. <laughs> I was good at it as a teenager, and now I stink, so I just don't do it. Why? I don't want to do stuff I suck at. I want you to be like, oh, gosh, that guy's impressive. You know, I'm on a golf course, I'm not. So let's go for a walk. <laughs> That's all I got left, man. That's all I got left. I walk like a champ. <laughs> hey, this is what happens, though, when you take the gospel of grace and you turn it upside down and you make it all about yourself. It's an entirely self-centered, self-focused way to view this text. And I'm guilty of it. It's what happens when you set your hope fully on your perfect performance rather than setting your hope fully on the grace of God. For any of you who are like me in this, and, and I think deep down some of you know you're not perfect, you know you're not like Jesus, I just want to ask you the gentle question today. Where did we get the idea that we're supposed to try to be like Jesus? Right? Some of you hear that, you freak out. They go, oh my gosh, Brett went on sabbatical. He came back, doesn't want to be like Jesus. Honey, get your bag. Let's get the kids. Let's go. Before you, you know, run or try to take me out as a heretic, hear me out. I have a long passage I want to read you out of a, a book by a guy named Steve Cuss. He's a pastor in the States, Australian guy, pastor in the States. He wrote this. He said, too much of our church language subtly and overtly sends us the message that our job as followers of Jesus is to become like Jesus. We even quote the Bible sometimes. Our work isn't to try to become like Jesus. Our work is more difficult than that. It is more fruitful and freeing. Our work is to die to self. There is a canyon-sized gap between trying to become like Jesus and dying to self. One leads to legalism, bondage, and exhaustion. The other leads to the freedom offered by Jesus. You may be thinking, wait just a hot minute there. I'm pretty sure the authors of Scripture talked about becoming like Christ. Yes, they did. And every time they did, they described it using the passive voice. Here's one quick example from Paul to the churches in Galatia. My dear children, for whom I am, again, in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Christ formed in you. Becoming like Christ is what God does in us, not what we do. God is the active agent. We are the recipient. The spiritual transformation is God's work. What is our work then? Does God do all the work and we just sit around in life's hot tub, lazily waiting? No, we have work to do as well. It just isn't trying to become like Christ. It is equally hard work, perhaps more difficult than the attempt to be like Jesus. Having died to our false self, our flesh, God now performs his resurrection miracle in us. We are now in a posture to be resurrected by the power of God into the freedom of life in God. It's not about shirking responsibility. It's about a clear division of labor. Our job, die to false self. God's job, transform us into the likeness of Christ. How do we fulfill our job description here? 
I want God to transform me into the likeness of Christ. My question is, how do we fulfill our job description? The answer to the question is repentance. There's a massive difference between trying to be like Jesus and simply following Jesus. And the Bible says we're to follow Jesus. Trying to be like Jesus in your own strength is like being the donkey this constantly chasing a carrot on a stick that he knows is never going to get. You'll never get it and eventually you'll realize that you'll never get it and you what you'll do, you'll give up. Just like the donkey walking on the road that occasionally gives up until its driver gives it the carrot, puts a new one on the stick and goes again. It's a bad way to follow Jesus. Following Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit means that you will consistently be repenting of sin. You'll be consistently throughout the entirety of your Christian life dying to your false self. You'll consistently be realigning your values with the values of King Jesus. And my guess, my guess is that that means I can then learn to read this text correctly in the freedom that is contained therein, not the bondage that I've placed on myself. When I know who I already am in Christ, I don't have to try to be perfect. In fact, the entire offer of the gospel is only made to those who acknowledge they're not perfect. But who also know they need a perfect savior. Because the gospel's true, I don't have to try and prove myself. It's very liberating for the overachieving, perfectionistic-minded kind of folks who live in the city of Vancouver and make their home at Christ City Church. I'm now free to be imperfect and still follow Jesus. Verse 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, when I stop trying to be perfect like Jesus and instead I, I just commit myself to imperfectly following Jesus, I'm actually free to enjoy the lavishness of his grace. So, so, so do we aspire to holiness in our conduct? I just read it. Be holy in all your conduct. Of course we aspire to holiness in all of our conduct. But we don't pursue holiness that leads to perfection we pursue holiness that leads to repentance. And that's the shift. We don't pursue holiness that leads to perfection. We pursue holiness that leads to repentance. We just spent months looking at the lives of those in Scripture who live by faith, right? You went through a whole series of this. You know what they shared in common? All of those heroes of the faith that we looked at, you know what they shared in common? Not one of them was perfect. All of those failed saints in the Old Testament, New Testament, all of them, they just repented of their sin. They just never stopped repenting. That's what makes them heroes. Their perfection was not what makes them heroes. It's their repentance. Read through Hebrews 11. It's just a messed up family tree. It's hilarious. It's just crazy stuff those people did. And they're the heroes of our faith. Why? Because they're perfect? No. No. We've never brought somebody up here on their testimony. Just come tell us your testimony of how you have finally achieved perfection in the Christian life. Go ahead. There's only one guy. His name's Jesus. The rest of us imperfectly follow him. 
That's the stuff we actually need to celebrate, though. Imperfectly following. Like, not like Johnny's perfect and Susie never doubts. Oh, look at Susie. She just never doubts. Let's celebrate it. That stuff's hot trash, man. It's just hot trash. Hot trash stinks. It's bad for you. The whole neighborhood is gross. Get that out of here. Let's celebrate that stuff. It's not even true. It's a figment of somebody's imagination. Johnny's not perfect. Susie doubts. She just doesn't talk about it because she thinks that her religious performance is more important than her authenticity. Billy's a repenter. Kid's a mess, but he's a repenter. Keeps coming back to Jesus. Honestly, Mary keeps coming back to Jesus. Such a screw up. Just her whole life's a train wreck. She keeps coming back to Jesus, though. Can we tell those stories? Can we celebrate the right thing? That we never stopped repenting? Like, I don't know, some of you, you're sitting there beside your parents and your parents are like, but we're perfect. Don't tell anyone. No, they're not. My kids are in the room. They have dirt. Lots of dirt on me. The only way you stop growing is when you stop repenting of sin. Full stop. The only way you stop growing in your faith is when you stop turning back and running into the loving arms of Jesus. There is a bishop from Liverpool, England who said this, J.C. Ryle, hundreds of years ago, he said, if you stumble, he will raise you up. If you err, he'll gently bring you back. And if you faint, he'll revive you. Come on. Do you believe this? We're transformed through our repentance. We are a people who have been recipients of grace. We are transformed through our repentance. And third, we are participants in mission. This is why it matters. It's not all about you. You've received grace, forgiveness, salvation as a gift. You're being transformed by that same grace now as you imperfectly follow Jesus through realigning your life according to the will of God as revealed in Scripture. You, you, now, though, you get to share that with those around you. Look at our text again, verse 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our received identity translates into the responsibility to share that with the world around us. What a joy that responsibility is. And I want to just introduce to you some people whose stories have been changed by Jesus, who've heard the good news, who've received this grace, and are, who are being transformed even as they enter into baptism today. So let's watch this video together. I've always lived in a Christian home, and Jesus has always been a part of my life. When I went to Bible camp with my friends, um, I got more interested in learning about Jesus, like from chapel and stuff. And I want to pray to Jesus more and bring my notebook to church and have a desire to learn about Him. I feel a really big relief that Jesus is merciful and He forgives. I want to be baptized because I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and because I just, I feel like I am a Christian and just really want to, you know, make that big. <laughs> like, I want everyone to know that. My life before Jesus was fairly stressful. School was incredibly tiring and difficult and just felt really burdened um, and shackled all the time and always tired. I had my first encounter with Christ when my parents convinced me to attend 
church. And on one of the many Sundays, the worship song was Blessed Be Your Name. And in the lyrics, it goes, He gives and takes away. And so I questioned, uh, why would God take away? And I realized that God has taken away everything that I've prided myself on. And so that made me realize that God has control and sovereignty over all things and that my own efforts and merits don't really mean anything. And so that is how I started uh, believing that Jesus Christ was real. So life right now has been very different from before. I don't feel that burden or pressure anymore because God is in control. I'm confident and I don't have to stress or worry or try in so many different ways to make things work because God will make things work. I want to be baptized today to, at the very least, leave this testimony to glorify Him um, and let other people know and hear that God is real and that um, He has a plan for you. And as long as you seek Him, you will find Him. My life before Christ was uh, was based on my own uh, sense of morality. Uh, I came from an uh, Islamic uh, family, but a family that they're also very flexible. So uh, they never forced me to anything. So from early ages, I, I realized that I have to decide for myself uh, what is good and what is bad. But I didn't know where to base this belief, this morality on. Life just felt like uh, meaningless, uh, as if I'm navigating uh, on a broken compass uh, that, that points at every direction and each, each of those directions leads to nothing. I came to Christ uh, after I got introduced to uh, Christ City uh, Church and started reading some books and uh, one of those was uh, Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus and it was really relatable to me since uh, the writer had a very similar background. So that really touched my life and it started to give me encouragement to dig deeper, to see if there is any truth or in a sense logic behind Christianity. I realized what I'm reading is the truth and I know now that I have a purpose, that I, uh, that uh, this life of mine is not, it's not meaningless. I want to be baptized to proclaim uh, Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, the love that He has uh, towards me and um, towards us as a body of Christ. Uh, I already know this in my heart, but it's a sign to the outside world of my commitment to Him. Before coming to Jesus, my life was sinful and I know that I was a sinner. Like very well I felt that I am doing something wrong and I did not know a way out. I came to Christ through uh, my uh, school uh, which conducted a retreat. So there I felt the love of Christ and I was searching for Him and He led me to people through whom I would know Him better. God has helped me to overcome all my sins and uh, to show people that even in my family they were able to see the difference in me after I came to Christ. Uh, I saw Him answering all my prayers and though I, I doubted a lot, until this day He has been leading me and guiding me in His way. I want to be baptized because I love the Lord and I want to show people around me that uh, 
I love him and my life is going to be with him. In my life before Jesus, I was uh, always looking to fill this void that I had. I always felt like something was missing and uh, I tried to fill it with all sorts of different things, uh, relationships or activities or career pursuits and uh, nothing really ever filled that uh, void. And I was a very, uh, I was a pretty adamant atheist. I was 100% convinced Christianity was false. So I came to Christ through a uh, revelation. I went to the bathroom and I started to get a very massive nosebleed just out of nowhere. And God spoke to me and told me I give you good things and I can take them away. I was thinking about that in very Book of Job context without the happy ending at the end. And for the first time in my life, I understood what the fear of God was and uh, I accepted uh, Jesus Christ in that moment. After coming to Jesus, the content of my life hasn't really changed so much, more like the context. It's like, I still have the same issues I had before, but it's just things feel lighter. I don't feel the need to have any of the stuff that I have. If I lost any or all of it, I'd be fine because I have uh, Jesus and God. So. I want to be baptized because I feel it's an important part of my journey as a Christian. And I also want to be baptized to have something that I can celebrate my newfound Christianity with my newfound Christian family. My life before Jesus was turmoil. It was nothing but sin. Uh, there was a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow, and a lot of trying to find myself and trying to find peace. I never seemed to be able to find it no matter what I did. Uh, sexual immorality, drugs, alcohol, nothing seemed to be able to satisfy me. My mother, rest her soul, prayed for me for years. She would always try to preach to me, um, preach to me the gospel. She would always send me uh, literature. She passed away three years ago, but she, I'm sure that her last dying breath, she prayed for me. November 5th last year, I woke up at two o'clock in the morning, just sweating and shaking and full of the absolute belief that I was a sinner and I was going to hell and I had to get down on my knees right now. And so that's what I did. I went into the living room, I got down on my knees and I prayed to God to save me and help me. I had this peace that came over me after two hours of crying and praying that I just I had this inner peace that was just like a sigh of relief, a sigh of things that were true and things that I could believe in. Life since that moment, have uh, I've seen a lot of peace, a lot of rest. I've seen a lot of joy and uh, the emptiness that I had is gone. I, uh, I look for ways to please Jesus and to, uh, to love him more and I pray a lot. I read the Bible a lot and try to understand and know him more so that I can do his will. This is the reason I want to be baptized is I want to profess my, my life to him to, uh, to give to him what all I have.